The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome. This is Bleacher Blums, a sports podcast for baseball fans. Now here's David Tuttle and Astros master of banter, Blummer. Are we ready? All right, let's start. Let's roll, man. All right. This is the Bleacher Blumps podcast. I am Jeff Blum, and I am a 14-year Major League veteran. That sounds so bad, dude. How about just welcome to the Bleachers? My name is Jeff Blum. If you've been hanging out with us and listening long enough, we thoroughly enjoy your company because you are fantastic, loyal subscribers. We just ask you to tell everybody else about it. Make sure that they click that subscribe button because it makes us look better inside the Blue Wire Network, and maybe we'll get on one of their pages one of these days or maybe promoted on one of their Twitter feeds. Who knows? But the fact that I get to co-host this show is a lot of fun. Obviously, we just passed our 400 or four-year plateau and 200 episode plateau. So we are we are well on our way to becoming this this massive media conglomerate known as Bleacher Blums. But my good friend David Tuttle is out there on the left coast. We made it through this Thanksgiving holiday. How did you get through? We, last time we talked to you, we were at a cabin. We were in your car. We were losing contact. <laughs> you had to listen to me for an you know exponential amount of time. But Tuttle, you're back in the home studio. How are we doing? How was the Thanksgiving break? How was the cabin? How was everything that goes on in that Tuttle household? It's great, Blummer. Thanks. Great to be with you. Uh, and our loyal listeners, as we pointed out last time on episode 200, we're very grateful for all the listeners we have. Uh, Thanksgiving holiday was great. So one, I'm trying to come up with like one point. So a lot of people got to see the cabin and cruising around and all that, but really, um, you know, I think it shows the commitment to this podcast and, you know, the enjoyment that we get out of this, um, you know, to be doing it on vacation. And I guess, you know, episode 200 was just, uh, you know, the grateful episode. But what occurred over this holiday is, you know, the cabin is kind of spread out and it's very much glamping. I mean, it's, you know, sleeping bags and whatever. I mean, you're right there on the beach, so it's fantastic. But, you know, it's not like high society, which is totally fine. It's great. We're used to it. Um, but the dog, the dog stopped sleeping in his little bed and he started hopping up on the bed at night and sleeping with me. So since we've been home, Uh guess who's on my bed every night? I'm like, dude, you cannot sleep up here. And this has nothing to do with, he's like a short haired dog. He weighs like 17 pounds. He's made appearances (laughs) on the podcast before. He's not intrusive. 
except that he's intrusive, you know, when you're trying to get some sleep, like get away from my legs. So anyway, so the vacation has ruined Alfred. Um, it hasn't ruined anybody else, but uh, anyway, but that, that's the, that's the way it goes, man. Um, yeah. Blummer, how how was your the your Thanksgiving holiday? How did that finish up in terms of? I know there was a lot Dude. of football. I know you pulled out your turkey taster shirt, official yep. turkey taster. Excuse me. Um, but what like did you have more people arrive at the house than you thought? Uh, Mia was home. I mean, what? Tell us what the uh, household was. I've like. got, there's a, that's a lot to unpack because that Thanksgiving <laughs> break was intense, bro. Mm. The, the first of all, the turkey taster shirt has got to be about 15 to 18 years old. I think I got it when my oldest daughter was like, that was her first Thanksgiving. I don't know. And it, and it's just, I don't even know if Paul Frank is even, I don't know if he's been canceled. I don't know if he's still a designer, whatever it is, but that's the t-shirt. So that gives you an idea how old it is, but it's, it's made out like Teflon, man. Like it's one of those t-shirts, like the old school Hanes ones where you, or Gildan, where you put it on and it doesn't stretch. You can almost put it on like uh, old football pads. And it's yeah. like straight jacket type, Sand but it still fits. Straight jacket. You appreciate this because being men of a certain age, it it still fits, bro. I mean, I can still get it on and take it off. So that's probably like the biggest bonus of that. It's like a test every year. Can I get the turkey shirt on? <laughs> <laughs> maybe after you know, You're maybe it's a couple hours turkey, after. Th- <laughs> yeah, after Thanksgiving, I give it a couple hours before I can take it off. But uh, Thanksgiving was great. Fried the turkey, fantastic. Our house has become the house that everybody shows up at. So I don't know if your kids have started doing this yet, but I'm going to suggest it to your kids. It's called Friendsgiving. So it's this secondary Thanksgiving called Friendsgiving where the kids have their own version of Thanksgiving. They bring sides, they cook the turkeys, they have a blast, and then it turns into just straight bedlam. Mm. So the triplets had 13 to 15 of their friends over, and guess who decided to have her friends over on the same exact night? Mia. Uh, Your wife, no. No, Mia. Mia. So needless to say, Saturday was this epic Friendsgiving evening that ended at one o'clock in the morning, and it ended with me saying, I'm out. Peace. I, I literally hit a wall and a headache started to hit me. And I was like, peace, got to go. And I checked out. That was it. That was the end of Friendsgiving for me. Yeah. Well, the Friendsgiving, like you said, was for your daughters. And it sounded like you were the supervisor or at least the, the semi-chaperone <laughs> yeah. or participant. But, you know, maybe it's giving them a much better handle on, uh, on you know, like you said, how to clean up the mess. I don't know if that happened or how to, you know, have everything, you know, how to be responsible for it all, I guess, yeah. from beginning to end, instead of having you guys, uh, you and Corey as the safety net. So I, I'm, I'm going to suggest the Friendsgiving, you know, Tyler's finishing up college applications. The kids are getting older. Our girls are a little bit younger, but we're, uh, you know, we were thinking that the beach this year, he'll be at college next year. So we're trying to figure out you know, mm. that's the last time we get all, you know, five of Dude. us and the dog in the car, right? Because now everybody's going to be coming from different spots and how are, how are you handling that? I mean, this is your first, this is your first lasts. <laughs> first lasts. I like it. So, um, yeah, first lasts. That's a good way. I mean, I'm sure you've <clears throat> thought of that before. I'm handling it fine. I mean, I, I know my wife's already worried about him leaving. So he doesn't leave till next year at this time. And we have all the way till September pretty much, I would think so. But, uh, you know, I think we've said this before, but men handle those things a little more practically. Like he's ready to go. I'm more worried. I mean, just getting the applications in is such a pain in the ass. And we've mentioned that we didn't have to go through that. It was great. It was like, 
you know, when seven mm-hmm. called you and said, Hey, how'd you like to come up to the school? You're like, yep. And then yep. they're like, this is what you need to do. Fill out this application, submit it here and it'll go through. And you're like, all right, thanks so much. I'm in. When do yeah. I come up? Oh yeah. you're in. Anyway. So that kind of stuff is, you know, is new for us. And you know, there's a lot of, you went through it with me and there's a lot of, uh, yeah, but then you have to wait for these schools to accept and all these emails. I mean, it's, it's insanity. What trying to get into a school is, um, that's exciting, but you, you soccer is relevant in your family. How about team USA, bro? The world cup is going on and they advanced to the knockout stage, dude. That's big news for us. And that dude, Polisic literally sold a a small, I don't know how small, but a small body part for that win. Yeah, either his pancreas or his kidney or his liver is uh, struggling. Or a nut, so whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, we don't know if Saturday. Oh, yeah, it might be a, a <laughs> they nut. They got nut right. dislocation. But, I got to repair yeah. this. Well, they took him to the hospital because I'm sure he was bleeding. <clears throat> they, he was like, oh, there's yeah, blood true. there. So anyway, um, yeah, it's fantastic. That's funny. I wrote that down today. We were talking about, you know, a little bit of a format change. But I wrote down the fact, and, you know, we've discussed it before, but being in Cuba as I got the lovely pleasure to be uh, many years ago for Team USA and listening to the uh, national anthem, you know, on foreign soil with, you know, kind of your group of 20 guys is really empowering and it's really special. And I think playing a game where it's not just you and the the other 20 guys or 25 guys, it's it's with the whole country's behind you and there's this support (laughs) and this wave and it's kind of fan. It's you know, it's it's overwhelming, and I think the fact that the USA moved on, I think they were expected to move on in many um, eyes of like the soccer experts. But you know, until you do it, um, it's not it's not done. I guess you know, Mexico um, is out um, as we record today, and they were right. they're always the superpower in this this little division, right? Concacaf, Canada, and US are coming up, and I think somebody pointed out that the USA team is now. We only have about four players still playing in the MLS, even though the coach came from MLS. We have all mm-hmm. like, you know, we have about 10 guys playing in Europe, you know, the, the, the best European leagues. And I think the consensus is that when we get all of our players playing in the top European leagues, that we're just going to yeah. get better and better and better. And that's where the best soccer is played. So what, you know, you're in a house where there isn't a whole bunch of soccer mojo. And, you know, this is kind of one of those things. But when the whole country is watching right it's hard not to turn on the game and root for usa so what is it what is it like there when you're not having this soccer energy my daughter Dude, obviously playing soccer and loving it that is it it is the national pride it's understanding that this is the the elite tournament every four years basically this the the olympics of soccer and uh we know how good the women's team is but to actually have the men's team involved is incredible and to have them advance is even better but yeah it's really been kind of this you know, this, uh, in a world, in, in a, in, but the state of the union it being as polarized as it is, it's still fascinating to see how, how the, how each country can rally around one particular team, if not the Olympics, but it's that idea of nationalism and the pride that goes along with it. It's wearing the USA on your chest. I mean, I love that aspect of it. And I think that's what kind of draws everybody to this world cup is, you know, is, is partly because of that, that national pride. But for me, not being a huge soccer fan, I love watching these countries play because they are so good and seeing some of these upsets, like you said, with Mexico, uh, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia playing well, just some of these Cinderella type teams going out there and playing. But I love watching good 
good soccer. And I like watching these certain teams go out there. You know, there's some legends that are on their way out. There's some newcomers coming in. I love the fact that Team USA is one of the youngest teams in the tournament. And like you said, they're playing internationally. So that's a lot of fun to watch. But it gives you a chance to kind of latch on and actually put a... You know, you hear, at least in, in the sports world, you hear the names. Now I get to see the face and I get to see the athleticism. And I go, oh, okay, that's why they're talking about him so much. But it's kind of cool in that sense. But yeah, our, our family, the girls came racing home. It kind of sucks that it's being played so far away in a different time yeah. zone. But Because I think their next game is at 9 a.m. And the girls are going to be at school. They're like, how are we going to watch it? You know, and stuff like that. But they're watching it at school. They're racing home to watch it with me at home. So I, I truly love that aspect of, of like these international matches that are going on. Because it does kind of bring everybody together. Even if it's around a sport that you don't watch all that often. Yeah, awesome. I, I love the insight. And I do think it's amazing to see like Cameroon play. And, you know, you, you feel like their country is so small, but their whole country was in the stands and they get all, you know, yeah. it's inspirational. That it's inspirational to see that. Yeah, it's inspirational to see these other smaller countries and their, um, you know, kind of their internal like uh, country uh, pride, I guess, that yeah. they that they feel the connection that they feel with these guys on the on the pitch. <laughs> Got to I love it. Yeah, and that's how pitch. you that's how you draw it back in. Total. That's why you're here baseball, to pitch. bring it back to baseball because pitch is universal. And uh, something this has been a big week down here in Houston. It's been a big week in baseball news too. And we've got a little bit of of something that we're going to call astronomical news. And then obviously we're going to hit on some of the astro big news this week. But there's also some rumblings in the baseball world as far as news is concerned. So Tuttle and I, we're going to talk a little bit about the Jose Abreu signing, which was the big news coming out of Houston. And I think the big news in baseball, and the reason I say it's big news in baseball, and obviously incredibly biased down here in Houston, having watched this team, seen what it's been able to do. But I do think this is big news within the, the realm of baseball because you have a World Series championship team in the Houston Astros, going out and signing a guy like Jose Abreu. He is a 2020 MVP. He is a perennial all-star with the Chicago White Sox who left that organization to come to Houston and sign a three-year deal close to $60 million. And as much as we love and appreciate Yuli as he is and for what he's done for the Houston Astros, he's been one of the best first basemen in the history of the franchise. But at the same time, it might be time to move on considering the age and the 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 quality of play during the regular season last year. Yuli had a great postseason, but at the same time, I feel that Jose Abreu is a better option at this time, and the Astros obviously feel the same way, giving him that contract. But a defending World Series team going out and signing an all-star first baseman in the offseason, I think speaks volume to volumes about what this organization feels about their ability to go out there and win again. And this does make their offense better. But on the outside, Tuttle, what does it look like when you see a team like the Astros, <clears throat> who have just won a World Series, signing a guy like Jose Abreu? Yeah, so the first thing that jumps to mind are the Dodgers and the Yankees, which is what they always did, right, with George Steinbrenner. It was like they didn't care if they had won. They always made a big splash in free agency. And I think the smaller market teams or these other teams don't typically have that reputation or the, you know, I, I, the e either it's the ability or the guts, right? You know, I mean, maybe it's a compliment yeah. to Jim Crane because they're like, look, we just won it with this payroll and, you know, this. But obviously losing um, 
James Click and, you know, making some changes during an off season when you, you know, you reach the pinnacle of the sport, I think it's really interesting to see them go out and make a big splash. I think you made two really good points there. One is the team does get better. They get better. Yuli is a fantastic player. And as you said, probably one of the best in Houston Astros history, but now going to be 40 years old. His contract was up. If you can keep him as a utility guy, that would be, I mean, gosh, that would be amazing. Take a pay cut, keep him as your guy back there. And I think yeah. Abreu is a solid defender, but it's really an upgrade um, offensively. But I do, I think it puts the Astros maybe in another um, realm of, I don't know, the baseball hierarchy when you're looking at the Yankees who re-signed Rizzo. And I think last time we really talked baseball in here, we thought the Astros had a shot to get Rizzo. Mm -hmm. um, and we both thought that would have been a good decision. But now getting Abreu is even, you know, comparable to that. And, you know, the Yankees and Dodgers should be on, you know, on notice, right? Because they go out and, you know, they sign all-star after all-star and add them to, you know, a lineup. But the Astros are showing that they're not willing to uh, to back down and they're going to be in the in the hunt every year. And so I don't know if that says much about the luxury tax or Jim Crane or whatever it mm -hmm. does. But um, I think it's a great signing. And the Astros, somebody put on Twitter last night, I mean, look at their infield. You know, you've got Abreu, Altuve. Now you have the, you know, probably the rookie of the year, Pena, who filled in for Correa. They could have still Correa and then Bregman. That's a solid, solid infield and a great place to start your team. And we know it's pitching and defense that wins championships, but, yeah. um, you know, the offense has to be there. And so now I think the next piece will be, um, you know, what kind of pitching can they get? Because it looks like Verlander's probably, you know, maybe 50-50 mm -hmm. to come back or 25-75 based on what we saw this morning. So No, I agree with you on the on the Verlander front because, <clears throat> you know, if, if they really felt that he was that key piece, they'd be chasing him down right now trying to offer him a contract to get him to come back. So I think that they're – because the pitching has been so good in the past and knowing that you have Lance McCullers – Framber Valdez, Jose Urquidy, Luis Garcia, Christian Javier, Hunter Brown. They have guys that they feel can fill that rotation. I do agree with you in the sense that there may be an opportunity to sign a veteran to put into that rotation. Maybe not that number one, but maybe that two, three, four type guy that you can put in that rotation. But that being said, the addition of Jose Abreu is crazy because he'll probably end up hitting sixth in this lineup, which is incredible to think about. The big number that jumped out for me, and we always talk about analytics, we talk about being clutch, whatever that may be, and the hitting with runners in scoring position is a big number for me. And I think it's a big number in the Astros lineup, too, because they are one of the higher on-base percentage teams in the league. So you're going to get more opportunities with guys on base. But Jose Abreu is hitting 311 in his career with runners in scoring position. And there's barely a drop-off when you get to two outs in runners in scoring position, hitting 308. So he is a high-contact, low-whiff, Exit velocity, runners in scoring position, everything like you just said offensively is an upgrade compared to, unfortunately, the year that Yuli had. Yuli, defensively off the charts, we'll have to wait and kind of see on a regular basis if Jose Abreu is that guy. But their offense got considerably better to go with that pitching staff. Um, how about the fact that this – does it feel like this offseason is, is moving at a little bit quicker pace for whatever reason? I don't know if it's because the World Series got pushed back. 
Um, you know, it just feels like guys are signing and it feels like, you know, the winter meetings are just start starting December 5th. I feel like everything is ramped up and speeding up a little bit quicker. Do you feel that same way? Because we've seen the signing, a couple of signings around the league, Rizzo going to the Yankees, like you said, Abreu Montero going to the Astros. And a lot of these conversations are heating up. You've been on both sides as a player and as, you know, an agent liaison, whatever it is. But does it feel like things are moving a little bit quicker this offseason for whatever reason? You know, I think it always heats up around winter meetings time, you know, and and what happens typically, I mean, obviously you're down there and it's funny you mentioned Abreu and uh, Montero. I mean, those are the two big signings and they're both there in Houston. So I think maybe there's the sense that, oh, all these signings are happening. But I, I mean, it looks like they're still waiting for the chips to fall. Aaron Judge, we brought up. Trey Turner looks like the Phillies are Ooh. after him. Um, you know, I mean, there, there are a bunch of guys that are on the precipice and I do think there's always the wait and see attitude, but I do think everything kind of heats up at the winter meetings. And you already mentioned the timelines pushed out a little bit because of the lockout. So I think maybe that's yeah. why it seems a little bit accelerated. We're going to have the winter meetings here in December and then January and February are upon us very shortly. And, uh, you know, everything kind of happens, uh, around the winter meetings as, as I recall. So, you know, and, and we brought up a couple other guys. I mean, Aaron Judge. Um, I'm wearing my, you know, Bleacher Blum's swag that supports the Giants colors. But I mean, mm -hmm. it sounds like it's down to two teams. The rumor is that Aaron Judge is at eight years, 300 million, which is pretty good. Um, my analysis, and I wrote down some notes, is kind of interesting, not statistically, but when you look at the Yankees and, you know, maybe there's the the sense that they can keep him for eight Eight years, three hundred million would make him the highest average annual value, which we always talk about AAV, and that's something that the right. players' union cares about and all that stuff. But you know, maybe he gets the C on his chest, which is you know whatever the third or fourth captain ever in the history. I mean, whatever they're enticing him. <laughs> but if you look at the logic of him signing with the Giants or somewhere else, they're going to have to fill the hole. And you know, at sixty-two home runs and you know batting three hundred and you know all the RBIs that he had, one hundred twenty whatever, one hundred thirty ribbies. I mean, you're going to be in a position where, like, that's a huge hole. You're going to have to sign two or three guys to fill, you know, hey, this guy hit 27 home point. runs, this guy hit 20. So I think it's really, like, are you better with him or without him, right? Because then you have a more solid lineup. And we saw the exploitation of the Yankees lineup in the postseason. Now, you know, True. I, as a former player, and you as well, I mean, you made a great name for yourself, you know, with one at bat in the postseason, Obviously, you're a 14-year big leaguer, but, you know, the postseason for me, you know, I mean, Barry Bonds had a fantastic postseason the year they lost the World Series in 2002. But, you know, it's really hard to be a one-man show in the postseason. Teams can pitch around you. They can do some things. You need some hot, you know, and, and it's hard yeah. to throw the whole, like, it's hard to throw the rest of the team under the bus and say, oh, they're a horrible team because, look, he hit 180 in the postseason. You know, I mean, Bryce Harper... Um, some of those guys did not hit as well in the World Series as they had, you know, leading up to it. Um, you know, look at Schwarber, hit 200 with like 50 home runs. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it was like, I think he hit 206 Pretty with close. 48 home runs, something like that. But my point is, is that these guys, I mean, they're integral in the lineup and and what he did in the postseason, obviously, um, I guess, uh, expanded kind of people's opinion of him. But he didn't have a great regular season. Schwarber didn't. They got hot at the right time. So... Long roundabout way to get to the question of with with Aaron Judge, are you better off of the Yankees having this, you know, captain in the middle of your lineup and not being able to sign other guys? Or are you better off letting him walk? 
he can get more money elsewhere and then filling that with three other guys because I do think that's the decision they have to make um, economically. And they, you know, they have laid it out there at eight years, 300 million. So I think it'll be up to him. It's not going to be about whether he can afford to, you know, put new shoes on his kids or anything <laughs> like that. So what, what do you think about the whole rigmarole? And then and my thoughts about one guy versus three guys in the lineup. Yeah, no, he's going to get generational money for, for generations. Uh, you know, so like you said, the contract is going to be there. It's just who's going to pay it or who is he going to choose to receive that check from? But I think you bring up a good point. And this is how GMs think is, you know, yes, we could go get this guy. What does he bring? 62 home run, or maybe not 62, but he's a you know 40 to 50 home run guy, especially in that ballpark in New York, uh, which is something he has to consider. And then, you know, the 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 run production, the war numbers that you talk about, the analytics, there's 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 ways to put value on a player outside of the money number. And is that enough to to bring him back? And I think you're right in the sense is if he is a 40 plus million dollar guy a year, say 45, because that would put him above, you know, uh, uh, Max Scherzer as far as annual value of the contract. And if he's a $45 million a year guy, or even 40, that's, you know, that's $40 million if he's not on your roster that you can spend elsewhere. You can go get two $20 million outfielders to go out there and try and compensate for that. Granted, it's going to be a lot of production, but at the same time, I think in watching what the Astros are able to do with their pitching staff, you know, could you allocate those funds somewhere else? Could you sign a $20 million pitcher or could you bring in a Jacob deGrom for the same number and say, okay, that's going to make our team better because not only are we, we're taking runs off, off of our, of our ability to score, but we're also adding the ability to suppress opposing, opposing teams. Is that something? Could you go get a starter and a reliever? I don't know, but there's a lot of wiggle room when you talk about a $40 million contract, but at the same time, you know, the value of Aaron Judge, I think, goes beyond the field also. He puts butts in the seats, man. This dude is a six foot seven Adonis who can go out there and destroy baseballs on a regular basis. Fans aren't just showing up for games. They're showing up to watch him take batting practice. That's how that's how incredible this guy is. And so you've got to think about ticket sales. You've got to think about merch sales. How many jerseys is this guy going to sell to compensate for this? Uh, you know, I would imagine if you're a Yankee fan or a Giant fan, knowing that you're signing Aaron Judge, you better get ready to pay a little bit extra at the gate to get in to watch these guys play. And to your point, I think the Giants, would it, they're going to make a run at them, but they're also a team that maybe has a little more leeway or payroll flexibility to go sign him at that $40 million plus and then bring in somebody else at a $20 million. So you can add some talent around Aaron Judge, I think, in, in San Francisco that may be a little bit smarter than what is happening in New York. Because I think New York has some issues with their lineup, with their rotation, with their bullpen that they're trying to clean up. But man, great points on the idea of, is Aaron Judge worth it by himself? Or can we go get two or three guys to fill that role with that payroll and be a better team? That's the ultimate question. How do you figure that out? You know what? I, what what you just touched on made me think of the Giants need to get somebody like that. They need one or two guys this year. And I said this before. They had the identity of you know Buster Posey, a three-time World you know Series champion behind them. Good plate. leaders, you yeah. Know, Bruce Bochy was there, you know, kind of, you know, holding down the fort. And we don't have that. The Giants don't have that. And, uh, you know, hopefully that's to come in the offseason, regardless of whether it's Aaron Judge or not. So why don't we take a break here on the Blue Wire Podcast Network? It's time for a break. And we'll come back and discuss a couple more things about baseball. 
The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. And welcome back to the Bleacher Blums podcast here on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Uh, there's Blummer at Blummer27 on Instagram and Twitter, myself at Real David Tuttle on Instagram and Twitter. You can visit us at bleacherblums.com, get the episode and get any swag that you need. Um, and we have some short hops on, on the YouTube channel. So Blummer, we were just talking about the Abreu signing, the possibility, the possibility of uh, Abreu landing somewhere. But uh, to finish up the baseball topic for the week, um, we did lose a uh, Hall of Fame pitcher yesterday, Gaylord Perry. Yeah. And I wanted to read some numbers. I mean, he was obviously famous for nowadays. They throw the baseballs out so quickly and they check you every <laughs> inning like he wouldn't have. Not only would he not be in the Hall of Fame, he might not have made it out of the minor leagues because, you know, get tossed out of all these games. But he got traded. So he was uh, drafted by the San Francisco Giants in 1958. He got traded to Cleveland. It was the Indians, not the uh, Guardians, just telling you. He got traded to Cleveland Indians in 1971. I'm going to read you the statistics, and then you know, I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts or experience with Gaylord Perry. So Gaylord Perry got traded to the Indians in 1971, his first season with them. He threw 342 innings. He was 24 <laughs> and 16, and he had a 1.92 ERA. Like... That's like three seasons for like guys now. What the? <laughs> he threw three hundred and forty-two innings. Anyway, what do you what do you think about that? And do you have any uh, uh, thoughts on those numbers in today's market? Oh what would man, he get paid? No, <laughs> it, it, yeah, what he would get paid nowadays would be frightening because of the ability to go out there and grant. He was one of those more unique guys. You know, he knuckleball, spitball. I mean, this guy was notorious. For, for the wiping and his routine before each pitch, uh, you know, played for what 38 different teams, I think, in a 30 team league, or you know, he was he was around. Uh, you talked about him signing, getting traded. That was his first year with the Cleveland Indians. He went out there and won the first of two Cy Youngs. He, so not only did he have the antics and the skits, but he had the stuff. He was able to back it up. And that was kind of the mystery behind Gaylord Perry was, you know, was he was it sticky stuff or was it wet stuff? You know, Vaseline was, you know, guys would talk about facing him. And as he threw it, it would look like, you know, a little splash coming off the ball as he threw it with Vaseline, whatever it may be. But to Tuttle's point, the 340 plus innings, he led the league that season with 29 complete games. The next season, Led the league again, 29 complete games. 
The next season, 28, 25. A couple of years later, he threw 21. This dude was a CG machine. And I think that's what's most amazing about this guy. And that era was the ability to do it. Pitched for 22 years. He's in the Hall of Fame, five-time All-Star, and like I said, two-time two, two Cy Young, but one of the more entertaining watches as far as baseball is concerned. So rest in peace, Gaylord Perry. Highly entertaining and phenomenal career. Yeah, he was he was amazing, and the stories are fantastic, and it just always makes me think of this week in baseball, like going back. Yeah, so we got to find a good some show. U, YouTube clips on uh, YouTube clips on uh, Gaylord Perry. All right, Tuttle, we got the baseball, we got baseball and business out of the way. Now it's our time. So in our time, we're going to let Tuttle talk about what he wants, and then I've got a little something that I want to talk about heading into the holiday season. But Tuttle, what do you got? Anything on the top of your mind or the tip of your tongue? Yeah, um, our time. That's uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. There we go. This is, <laughs> hey, I figure I'm here and you're here. Doesn't so that make, doesn't it, that make our it our time? time? Oh dear, you're causing a major disturbance on my time. You know, I've been thinking about this, Mr. Han. If I'm here and you're here, doesn't that make it our time? There we go, <laughs> like Mr. Hand. There's another actor that passed away a, a couple of years ago. He was fantastic. You know, um, Blummer, I read this uh, over the holiday, and I thought I probably wouldn't be able to articulate it the same way, but I was listening to a sports talk show, and I think it was Will Blackman, who was a cornerback safety in the NFL. And we talked about this consistently on our podcast. And I thought I would bring it up to you. We don't have to have a, a long-winded conversation about it. But we were talking about analytics versus eyeball test, and we always do. And I thought Will Blackman put it in a, in a great um, – he, he just stated it very clearly, the difference between coaches. And they were talking about like Sirianni in Philadelphia, how he took over last year and he – had that initial press conference that pissed everybody off. Like this guy doesn't know what he's doing. And now they're obviously performing well, but he obviously has the buy-in from the guys in the locker room. Um, and I think we've talked about it very consistently about chemistry, about, you know, leadership and who follows who. And if the players and the leading, uh, like the all-star players, all pro players are following the coach, then most of the locker room follows along as well. So um, the, I got to read it because it made more sense, but, yeah, read um, it, man. It's good well, stuff because, I mean, a lot yeah. of times I think coaches, especially in football, I think, you know, the media is going to have one idea. But like you said, yeah. I care about what my clubhouse thinks of me yeah. as a leader. And if those guys are buying in, usually that team's successful. Exactly. So, I mean, it's not a quote, but he said that the good coaches, the best coaches that he's been around, and maybe he's thought about it a little deeper than I had. I just could never put it into words. He said the best coaches capture the energy that's what he's saying. Capture, capture the energy of the moment. So that's it. Mm -hmm. It's not eyeball test versus analytics. It's not saying that the exit velocity or the fact that Abreu hits three three eleven with runners in scoring position and three oh eight, you know, with runners in scoring position, two outs. It's what is the energy? What is the game? What is the moment? And we've talked about this with Dusty Baker. I feel like he captured the energy of the team in the moment. And that's what good coaches do. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with that. Will Blackman said it. I'll give him credit. That's where that's what good coaches do. You know, we talked about this decision with um, with Abreu and Guriel. I mean, this is like Bill Belichick got credit for years and years of doing this. I mean, the bottom line is you got to move on at some point. And is Abreu an upgrade over Guriel statistically and age wise? He is. So you make that decision, and you'll get the buy in from your team that you're trying to win again. You're trying to go back to back. And that will capture the energy. And so I think when we continue to talk about analytics versus eyeball test, 
That's all. The difference is the good coaches, the good managers, the good decision makers capture the energy. And the, th- the analogy or the example I thought of was the Giants this year. They're coming from a losing franchise. They got Brian Dayball as the new head coach, uh, the New York Giants, obviously, football Giants. And um, they've lost a couple years. Dayball's from the Belichick coaching tree. Opening weekend, they get a touchdown with you know no time left, essentially. And Dayball puts up two fingers. They go for two and win the game. That he had, he has his whole team bought in for the rest of the year just on that one decision. Did the analytics say go for two in that situation? No way in hell do they say go for two. But he captured the energy of the moment and got his team and got them now into a position to be, you know, to change the kind of the course of the franchise. I don't know if they're going to make the playoffs this year. I don't know if they're going to do anything powerfully this year, but they have a coach. Um, moving forward, and they have a coach that's going to be able to connect with the players just based on that one decision. So I know you've been in situations like this before, but I really like that capture the energy, and I think it it really encompasses what we've talked about on this podcast consistently. Can you think of any other examples, or do you you know do you have any thoughts on you know how how you know what that means to you? It means a lot. I mean, that's actually a great way of putting it. I mean, in this day and age where everything's been talked to ad nauseum, I think that, you know, when you can get a fresh take on something or create a different, uh, you know, get away from the cliche of things, I think capturing the energy of a team is is great. And how about having the re- the ability to recognize it in order to harness it? And that's what uh, Dayball and some of these coaches have done. Sometimes it's getting that fresh blood in there. Sometimes it's getting that guy that's going to be to take a chance. And like you said, it takes one moment to get these guys to buy in. And Dayball found his moment by by telling his guys that I believe that we can tie this game with a kick. Yes, but I also believe that we can win this game. And that's sometimes harnessing that energy. Energy means collecting the the belief. And once you collect that belief and everybody starts going in the right direction, that's great. But again, as coaching is, it's it's capturing the energy, but how do you maintain it? It's like getting to the big leagues, but how do you stay in the big leagues? You know, that's that's probably the hardest part is finding that consistency. And some of these guys have figured it out. I appreciate the hell out of uh, some of these young, energetic coaches that are able to do that. And Will Blackman capturing the energy is pretty cool because I think his parents, you know, you talk about leadership. Every mom, every father is a leader of their family. And how do you capture that energy of your kids and push them in the right direction or get them to believe in you that you're pushing them in the right direction is probably the biggest thing. But, uh, you know, off the top of my head, I can't think of one one given moment or anything like that because, you know, the, the idea I played on one World Series championship team and it was Ozzie Guillen. The dude was crazy as hell, but I absolutely love him to this day for that craziness. And a lot of it was the ability to deflect deflect a lot of the energy and negativity of of the outside world and media and allow us just to be us so he in a sense you know allowed us to capture our own energy on that team but great great point in dusty baker you know being a phenomenal leader capturing that energy and pushing it in the right direction but i like it i like it a lot maybe that's something we need to explore a little bit more in this off season is how to capture that energy and which coaches are doing that and maybe find examples of it yeah, no, that's great. You know, it makes me, I just go to the John Belushi. I thought the same so, thing, you know, dude. This is hilarious. Right? Like, you know. Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! Germans? Forget it, he's rolling. And it ain't over now. 
Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Who gives a shit? Yeah. (laughs) Who's with me? Yeah, but everybody's running in the like, the dude leans over and he goes, wasn't that somebody? (laughs) You know, he's like, don't, he's, he's rolling with it. Let's just go with it. You know? Yeah. But I thought the same exact thing. Let him go. (laughs) But that's, but that's the buy-in. That's the buy-in. So anyway, that's something that, you know, you and I've talked about on this podcast uh, extensively and consistently. And I think that, uh, you know, we'll continue to talk about it. But when people look to us and say, what's the difference between this coach and that coach, or what's the difference between this organization and that organization, it's the ability for them to capture the energy and take it in the right direction and not overanalyze. So that's what I got, Blummer. You got a, you got a last, I don't know if it's a parting shot or a parting shot. What do we got? I just appreciate the fact that you brought up Animal House and the fact that we were thinking about the same thing at the same time is freaking hilarious. And I don't know if it dumbs us down a little bit, but, but, you know, but that brings me to this point. It is now holiday season and granted our radios are playing Mariah Carey every 35 seconds, but do you have, or does the Tuttle household, you being the leader of the Tuttle household, are you like, where is the... Where is the uh, Tuttle household as far as the film genre of holiday films? Or what is the go-to? Now, you're, we have both have kids, so we have the kid go-to, but is there actually a, a mom and dad go-to as far as like what the holiday film? Yeah. Like, is there something that pops up where you're like, oh, we got to watch this? What do you got? I got three. I got one, that, and I think we talked about this last year, but Die Hard, right? I the, love it. The, no, 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 but I mean, Die Hard's not one of ours. I'm just laughing because the debate rages on. Like, it's Completely. not a Christmas film. Yes, it, it is. No, always it's not. be a that, Christmas film. <laughs> all right, there you go. And we did that last year, I think. But that's funny. So Die Hard, I mean, I'll watch it because, you know, I think part of the reason the the, I mean, I guess I watch a fair amount of TV, but not... But, you know, you have more time over the holidays, right? You're sitting around the house and you're kind of doing things. You're like, all right, well, let's pop on that movie. So the three movies. So my mom always watched the original Christmas Carol. And this is, I say, the original. I mean, with Alistair Sim. Yeah, like black and white Alistair Sim. It's a really short movie. It's like an hour and ten. Alistair Sim, I think, is his name, the actor. Mm -hmm. Grouchy old Scrooge. And it's black and white, and it's about an hour and ten minutes. So it's also the shorter version. You know, come on, let's get to <laughs> the helps. let's get to the ghost of Christmas present. Let's get to the ghost the ghost of Christmas. Yeah, future. moving on. Yeah, moving on. So it's really quick. That one's good. I watch that. My mom comes down. We usually watch that one. The other one is Elf. Has become you mm. know cotton cotton headed ninny muggins. You know, my daughter and I will call each other cotton headed ninny muggins for a, a whole week. Um, you know, you can't beat that. And, uh, and then, you know, my favorite one and my wife and I watch it is, uh, love actually. And we talked about that before too, right. With that one's, that's a movie that it's just so squishy and so yucky. And so, you know, but we watch it every year and watching Hugh Grant Grant singing at the, like, all right. Oh, Christmas Carol is, uh, you Uh know, can you sing? And he get, he and his chauffeur end up singing at the, at the, uh, at the door. So love actually is one that. We end up watching a lot. That one's a, I, I, you know, I actually like the movie, but it's a little, yeah, it's a little, I guess, mushy, squishy, whatever. You oh want to man, say. So dude, it's that's a Elf, guilty pleasure Love movie. Actually, and Christmas Carol, it is a guilty pleasure movie. Yeah. So, do you watch oh. that movie? I mean, I know it's not a Blum staple, but when Corey has no, it on, do you run for the other dude, road? No, that's something that my wife and I, if it's on, we we can't turn it off. It's that 3 a.m. on <laughs> TBS right. on a road trip where you're like, dude, you can't change the channel, bro. Yeah. You know, in our house. Uh, it, mm-hmm. It's hilarious. So for us, Christmas vacation for me, obviously, Ooh. 
you know, when uh, <laughs> when, when Randy still... Quaid's out there at the corner, you know, spraying it, you know, hey, shitter's full, you know, stuff like that. And the Christmas lights situation. I mean, uh, everything about that movie great. is just priceless, and I continue to watch it over and over. <laughs> I watch that every year, too. I, gotta, <laughs> I can't get enough of it. Top three, I guess. Yeah, that's the one where the kids, you know, they, they, they come into the room, and they see it, and they roll their eyes and leave. So, you know, I get that a lot of me time when I'm watching Christmas Vacation. Uh, you know, Christmas Story we watch regularly. Apparently, there's a sequel to that coming out this year with some of the original cast, which is good. I'll watch it just because, I, you know, I, I can relate to the kid who's like, <laughs> you know, in that, that situation. But, uh, and the, the, the leg lamp is always a, a priceless situation, but I was going to say, man, my guilty pleasure is love actually. And you know, I'll give my wife a hard time when she turns it on or won't change the channel, but quietly I'm sitting there in the corner going, yeah. man, that's good stuff. I'm sitting there laughing. I'm getting it. I'm looking yeah, yeah. forward to when the dude goes running down the street and he's got like the whole village and the family running with him as he goes to propose at the end and stuff like that. I but I think that. the funniest part about that entire movie is you talk about it being squishy, mushy, rom-com. How about the porn stand-ins? Oh, yeah. How did that get into the movie? Who? I, mean, I don't did, know, but... Did the writers say, hey, man, we need something to offset all this gushiness. Okay, just put a couple of like you know, stand-in porn actors and have them doing some crazy stuff and having conversation. I think that's actually, I mean, that's the underrated part in there because the conversation, (laughs) I'm like, hey, good morning. Yeah, do you want to go get some coffee after? And they're like, I mean, it's uncomfortable every time. That's hilarious. The the part I don't like in it, when they segment the movie like that, as you said, it's a guilty pleasure. Love the Italian Italian, uh, writer, Colin Firth, and, you know, heading there with the whole village. You want to marry my daughter? And like, not that daughter, like the other daughter. Like, oh. um, but but the uh, but the you know the little boy, the drummer, the singer. You know that oh, one's not. Yeah. You know that's I don't I don't love that. I mean, they part. pushed I mean, every ro- romantic situation, like yeah. the childhood crush, yeah, the yeah. broken heart, the yeah. the the forbidden love, and then oh. just straight lust. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So they got they covered it all, and like you said, it's a guilty pleasure. That one's in rotation. Christmas Vacation is certainly in the top five for me. I didn't have it in my top three, but man, Christmas Vacation can't go wrong. You know, I feel like him in the attic wearing the pink robe when the family leaves him, because as your point, when the kids walk in or my wife, they're like, oh, and they just leave the room. I'm up there like. I'm like watching Christmas Vacation, like yeah, up that's in the us. attic, like, oh, this is great. I like this movie. It's so good, you know. And he's like, hey, you're going to the store, and, you know. Anyway, but Love you it. know, Chevy Chase is—he's a wizard for our generation. He is. Appreciate you, Tuttle. Good podcast. This is the Bleacher Blums podcast. We appreciate everybody who tunes in, and obviously, we do this out of enjoyment. And a part of that enjoyment is brought to us by all of the military home and abroad who who make the ultimate sacrifice to make sure that we are safe here and uh, outside this country. So we appreciate all military, veteran, and current currently serving. We uh, appreciate first responders, both police, fire, uh, EMTs, all the doctors, nurses, everybody who is essential to us uh, keeping our health up. And of course, all of those teachers out there who are doing a wonderful job teaching our kids and looking forward to that humongous Christmas break. Continue the great work and we appreciate you, Tuttle. You've got one last thought and then we're out of here, man. Right on. If you're over the age of 45, don't forget to get screened for colorectal cancer. Always on this podcast, we know those loyal listeners out there, we encourage you to get after it and believe it. Believe it. I listened to our podcast for the last 10 seconds. Truth. Yeah. It's truth. And I think every fan out there should. And I and I, I listen for 
hopefully improvement <laughs> sake, but you know. I, I listen for the marvel of how Mark makes me sound good. You make me sound good. <laughs>